This episode is part of the pool's Local Officials Stronger Together podcast series. It's one way we serve local officials through integrity, public service, fiscal responsibility, and operational excellence. As always, please direct specific questions about coverage to your member services manager. Welcome to episode Lucky 13 in the Risk Pool Stronger Together podcast series. Today's episode is about using contract language to transfer risk. As usual, I'm going to give you some basic information, visit with some experts in the subject, this time two RISPOL staff members, and then give you several action items to help you get everything you can from our partnership. Before we dive in, let's be clear on what we're talking about. The pool doesn't typically cover you when you breach a contract, and neither does traditional insurance. Why is that? It's because contracts are viewed as a business risk. You can decide whether to agree to do something and the terms on which you do so. In other words, contracting is within your control. Instead, we're talking about using contractual language to shift risk to the other party or parties who in most cases are better suited to manage it. An example is the relationship established in a public works construction contract. In that relationship, the political subdivision and the contractor should explicitly detail which entity assumes various risks through a written contract and insurance requirements. And if you go back to our original premise, if you stop paying on the construction contract and are sued, the pool typically doesn't cover the cost to litigate and or any damages you sustain. But what if a person is injured on the job site? That person will likely sue the contractor and others but they will also likely sue your local government as well. And your entity really had little or no control over what happened to cause that job site injury. If your contract properly shifted the risk to the contractor, your role in the litigation should be minimal. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Okay, so let's get into some of the main ways to shift risk in contracts. I've got two PDFs posted under this episode. The first is a handout prepared by pool staff with the basics of contractual risk shifting. The second is from Westlaw's Practical Law series, and it provides a more expansive review of contracts drafting. Special thanks to Kathy Cunningham, a former municipal attorney and still a mentor to me, for sharing her work with us. Kathy's now a Westlaw Practical Series author, and the attorneys who are listening should check out her work. The key risk transfer provisions you'll hear about today are defense, indemnification, and hold harmless, insurance requirements, including certificates of insurance, and additional insured requirements. So I'm now joined by Aaron Hardiman, the pool's manager of member services, and Joshua Haley, one of the pool's in-house attorneys. Welcome, guys. Aaron, tell me a little bit about your background. I've been with the risk pool for almost eight years now, and I came here from a city in the DFW region previous to that. And before that, I worked for a large insurance carrier. And Joshua? I have been with the pool for just over 17 years, and I came here almost directly from law school. Yes, that's exactly the way to do it. I came to TML in the exact same way, almost directly from law school. Okay, let's dive in. Tell me why contractual risk transfer is important. 
Well, what ends up happening is you would think that a city that has gone out to RFPs would ensure that they were getting the proper coverages in place with a certain vendor. But typically what you're going to see is that those vendors are passing on that liability back to the city. We see this all over the state and it creates exposure for the members that they actually don't know exists. And so they have attorneys that will review the structure of the contract, but may not be paying that much attention to the insurance requirements and the specific insurance coverage ISO forms that's mentioned in the documents. Going back to what you started with, you know, given that the risk pools coverage document specifically excludes breach of contract, that behooves a member to definitely make certain that they've got good contracts in place because if there is an allegation of breach of contract, it's highly likely that uh, there won't be any coverage for that. Aaron, can you give me an example of what can happen to a member if they don't have their contracts language squared away? Another example that happens is they hire a maintenance firm to work on their facilities and one of the maintenance workers got in an incident on property and unfortunately he didn't make it and the city had not put in place a requirement for waiver subrogation and workers comp for that worker so therefore the city was sued for that incident if they would have had requested workers compensation and a waiver of subrogation then the other company's insurance company could not try to subrogate against the city since they were on property for general liability. Joshua, tell us about how a covered claim can arise from a poorly drafted contract. You know, the city getting sued for breach of contract, an allegation of breach in that contract, certainly wouldn't be covered if that's the only allegation. But there's many things, and I think one of those examples might be one of them, where they get sued because of the contract. But they're still getting sued for something that we're going to cover and defend them on, like a personal injury type case, like where that person passed away. They probably got sued. And I'm guessing, Aaron, if I remember right, we probably ended up covering that. It's just when they only get sued for a breach of contract allegation where it wouldn't be covered. Back to having all those things in place that Aaron mentioned, the proper contract provisions, the additional insured status, and so on. That's going to help the risk pool as well, because then we can help the members seek out, if those things are in place, the indemnification from that other party's insurance company. And it just adds an extra layer of protection beyond what the pool is going to provide. You never want to be vague in the contract and then hope it goes your way. You want it to be very specific and you want to hold everyone responsible for providing the certificates of insurance, the additional insured endorsements and all of those things. Well, that's the key to everything we do, right? The idea is to anticipate and mitigate risk. Whether it's how a member operates a backhoe or whether their contracts protect them and thus protect the pool. We have a document linked under this podcast that we've talked about called Risk Transfer and Contract Strategies. Let's go through that briefly. Joshua, first tell me about defense, indemnification, and hold harmless provisions. You want to have all three provisions very specifically outlined. Don't forget one, leave one out. Because they are three different things. You know, defense basically requires that third-party contractor to assume and pay for the legal defense of your city or other governmental entity. The indemnification is going to require that third-party contractor to pay damages or losses on your behalf, on the city's behalf, or other governmental entity. And then the hold harmless requires that third-party contractor to waive or release any claims that it might have against your entity. So they are three different things, and I've seen so many contracts that will have 
two of the three or one of the three. Sometimes they just have the indemnification, which doesn't necessarily include the other two. So I think it is pretty important to have all three of them and to know what they mean. They are three distinct features of the contract. Aaron, what about provisions related to insurance and contracts? There's two specific provisions that entities need to ask for. One is going to be additional insured status. And there's two types of additional insured status that can apply on liability in the ISO market. One is blanket additional insured status. And typically what you're going to find out in an ISO policy is it's going to say, if required by written agreement. Well, there's no definition of exactly what a written agreement is. And so there's been some cases in the past where commercial insurance carriers have not stood behind the additional insured blanket endorsement. So typically we're going to recommend that they ask for a specific additional insured endorsement, which means when you get a copy of the certificate of insurance from the agent, they should include a copy of that additional insured status. And so that's going to apply across all lines of liability. It will not apply to workers' compensation. So then the second thing that you're going to request is an endorsement called a waiver of segregation. And that can apply across all lines of coverage. So you want to get that on liability as well as workers' compensation. So what is a certificate of insurance? So a certificate of insurance is just simply a snapshot of coverages that that entity has in place. So years ago, there were quite a few lawsuits related to certificates of coverage or insurance. We call them certificate of coverage, but certificates of insurance, because what was happening is there's a comment section. A lot of times provisions were being added in to the comment section that indicated maybe an entity might have particular coverage in place. And then when a lawsuit would arise, lo and behold, that coverage was not actually part of the insurance policy. Because if you think about it, you typically will have a broker in between the insurance company and then the company that's purchasing. And they're the ones that's responsible for issuing those certificates of insurance. Well, there was enough lawsuits related to that that about, I guess it's been about seven years ago, Senate Bill 425 got passed. And it basically said that a certificate of insurance is just that. It is a snapshot of insurance coverage and it is not a insurance policy and insurance coverage would not be extended based off what is on the certificate of insurance. Aaron, you mentioned ISO. Just so the members know what that is, ISO is the Insurance Services Office, and that's a group that provides advisory services and information to many insurance companies and develops and publishes policy language that many companies use as a basis for their insurance products. Finally, let's talk about additional insured status. I'll touch on that. Having additional insured status on a contractor's insurance policy gives your entity rights under their insurance policy. Additional insureds typically have narrower coverage than the insured contractor, but your entity should be covered for the liability related to the underlying contract. The insurance policy should be endorsed to add your entity to the insurance coverage, your entity should request and receive copies of the insurance policy and an additional insured endorsement along with any certificates of insurance. 
Keep in mind that the risk pool staff has drafted some language related to everything we've talked about today. And you can use that as a starting place. If you'd like to see that, please email me directly to get a copy of it. Okay, let's talk about today's action items. First, think about the type of contract you are entering into. If you're ordering a handful of pencils, do you have to do all this stuff? It's always good to pay attention to what you're signing off for, but you also have to take a look at your exposure, right? Because if if you tracked every single contract or agreement that you click on while you're going through Office Depot's online system to buy your pencils, then it'd be hard to transact business. At the end of the day, we really can't predict all of the exposures that could impact a member. And and those type of low risk or almost no risk, like the example of 500 pencils, I know it's a silly example, but, you know, our members order office supplies just like we do. Frankly, if you try to start applying such a a rigid analysis and requirements on everything, they're just going to go, you know, no thanks. We don't really want your business, actually. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of things to weigh there, and, and sometimes it's obvious, like 500 pencils versus a $50 million public works contract. That's good advice. So action item number one is to determine what type of exposure you have when you sign a contract and act accordingly. Action item two, review the information that accompanies this podcast and make sure you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's when you draft contracts. Finally, action item three. Make sure you have your high exposure contracts reviewed by your attorney. The upfront cost will be worth it compared to the possibility of complex litigation later trying to determine who's responsible for what. And as always, please reach out to your member services manager if you have questions. We'll do our very best to help. Okay, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll be with us next time. To review written materials associated with the presentation or to ask Scott a question, please visit www.tmlirp.org and click on the Stronger Together podcast link. Please remember that the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and doesn't constitute legal advice. We recommend that you review the podcast and the accompanying written materials with your attorney prior to taking action.